Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spastiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing? I'm doing great. I have a couple of quick shout-outs. So I have, yesterday was my brother Jim and his beautiful wife Sue's 40th wedding anniversary, so I just want to say kudos to them. Uh, today is my nephew, Jonathan, Jonathan Nelson, a.k.a. Jables, uh, 28th birthday. Now, Jonathan kicked my ass in an eating contest four years ago. So I am hell-bent to get my revenge. You know, Dominic DiNucci's avoiding me, but, but Jonathan won't. So, and then, now, I think there's somebody else has, has a birthday tomorrow, if, if my memory is correct. Who would that yeah, be, Dan? Your, your memory is correct, Benny. That would be me. I was hoping yes, we sir. could get around that. <laughs> one, 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 year, uh, one year closer to uh, reaching that, that grizzled old veteran status that you have, Benny. Okay. Well, I'm there. You know, actually, before we get to our, our panel, uh, you talk about shout-outs. The, the average sports entertainment that's wrestling, UFC, football, baseball, basketball, anything sports entertainment, the average life of a sports entertainment podcast is, according to the, uh, the Pod Bay and Podbean records, is three episodes. This is actually episode number 30 for us. So, Ten times the the exceeded length of the average podcast, and we continue to grow. And we do so because of not just the fans, but because we can constantly put out the good content. And we can't do that without good guests and good panelists. So to get to the crew we have today, we're joined by a friend of the show. He is a award-winning filmmaker, angry wrestling fan, and a YouTube growing YouTube personality, Mike Messier. Mike, how you doing, buddy? Well, I've got this special shirt for your birthday, Dan, that I'll send to you. <laughs> This uh, oh, no. it, it, it quite, hasn't quite reached the salvage bin for the Salvation Army in my neighborhood. I've kept. You might it. need to go there though. No. Yeah. Well. But anyway, Dan, happy birthday, buddy! Congratulations. Well, I appreciate it. For those that that uh, without the video, Mikey just held up one of the old Wrestling with the Future shirts. That was the show Benny and I met on before we spun off and did our own thing. But uh, joining Benny, Mikey, and myself is another friend of the program. He's an author at ProWrestlingStories.com, formerly senior editor for the GorillaPosition.com. He's uh, currently writing a series, which I recommend, on the wrestling, old wrestling territories. Uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday, the bit about the AWA just uploaded this morning. Uh, Jim Phillips. Jim, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? How you doing today, my brothers? And how we doing from the Rocky Mountain? Big hello from Denver. There you go. All right. Got Florida couple of guys in Florida, Virginia, and Colorado. Good stuff. Well, we're going to take a little different approach. Benny and I, we've uh, we've done the past. We've talked about, obviously, uh, one of our taglines, celebrating wrestling's storied past. Uh, one of the bits we do in the present, though, is pay-per-view reviews and, and talk about things. Mikey, I know we've had many conversations about the current wrestling product. But uh, something we had talked about doing for a long time and never really got to was a classic pay-per-view review, something where we could get some some old time, old fans together and kind of talk about uh, an older show. And for reasons that I, I'm not 100 percent sure, Benny 
thought the first pay-per-view we should do, and Benny, I'm throwing you completely under the bus. This was entirely your idea to make us sit through this spectacle. Was the 1991 Great American Bash. Now, this show has an interesting build-up to it because it was pitched, and before we get to the review, it's important to put a little backstory. Uh, the main event was supposed to be a cage match, Legend versus Legacy, as they called it, Ric Flair defending the WCW title against Lex Luger. Now, WCW title is important because this is the first Great American Bash pay-per-view under the WCW banner, no longer the NWA. Now, prior to this show... Ric Flair had some disagreements with Jim Hurd, who was notoriously easy to work with, especially during his time running WCW. And he was, depending on which story you believe, he was uh, unceremoniously let go, taking the belt with him, the big gold championship belt, because he had paid the down payment on it. So he wanted that money back, uh, plus interest, for all the time he had had the belt. Jim Hurd told him, pound sand. So Ric Flair took the belt and went home and left and famous, famously brought the belt with him when he signed with the WWF. Uh, remember the segments with Bobby Heenan calling Ric Flair the real world champion, holding the belt up, the thinly veiled attempts to not quite say NWA, WCW. Uh, but so you you had a one of the biggest shows of the year. Great American Bash was one of NWA's biggest and WCW's biggest pay-per-views of the year. And you had to change the main event at the last second. And we'll get to that uh, as we progress. Uh, another story that will come up. But So this show started really as, a, as a, a cluster and really did not get any better from there. So, uh, Mikey, this is your old, your old uh, stomping grounds, uh, some of the shows. This took place July 14th, 1991 from the Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, anybody that knows anything about NWA wrestling, Jim, tell me if I'm wrong here. Baltimore was always a hot crowd for the NWA. Yes, sir. And this crowd was uh, ready for a good show. And based on the crowd reactions, they did not go home happy at all. So, uh, Benny, what do you think? You uh, you regretting picking this one or you think we'll we still have fun with it? Well, I think the tire marks on my back are uh, the same as uh, on my cousin Vinny. Was the 1963 Pontiac Tempest of some brand of Firestone, but it's okay. I think we'll enjoy this actually. Now, I, I, you know, half. Let's be honest, guys. Half the fun of nostalgia is going back, and we all did it. Going back and watching stuff you remember, and being like, "Holy crap!" And I, I Jim, you said it. Benny, you said it. Mikey, I'm sure you had the same thought when we rewatched it. This is worse than I remember. Actually, I'm gonna, I want to disagree a little bit, Dan, if I could. Um, for those that don't know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of an ageless individual. I don't really age like most human beings. So I was actually in attendance at the 1988 Great American Bash, the Luger Flair pay-per-view, uh, as a young child, uh, with a great, uh, memory. The next year, the 89 Bash, which everybody universally loves, Flair Funk, I was there for that. The next one, 1990, I was not in attendance, but I watched on pay-per-view. And uh, this would be the one after that. So this would be the fourth Baltimore Bash pay-per-view. Uh, the Bash started in 85, uh, before there was pay-per-view wrestling, really. So um, this, this kind of hits me in the system. And like yourself, Dan, I really did criticize this show quite a bit. 
And I remember watching it in college, you know, years after it took place initially on VHS tape, because I still had my VHS copy and and besmirching it and laughing at the scaffold match in particular and thinking the fans chanting, we want flair, we want flair. Like, that's one of the first... I mean, if you take a look at Lesnar versus um, Goldberg at WrestleMania 20, tell me how the fans in Baltimore chanting, we want, we want flair, we want flair, weren't the predecessor to those fans booing Goldberg and Lesnar out of the building in Madison Square Garden. Um, tell me how the luger Wyndham double face heel turn uh, Luger turning heel in the main event, Wyndham de facto turning babyface. Tell me how uh, Steve Austin, Bret Hart didn't take a page out of that at WrestleMania 13 that we all praise. And the undercard of this show at the time was very Jim Hurdish, very jokey. You had, you know, seven foot tall Kevin Nash, who wasn't in the physical condition he would be in as Diesel. But there's Nash in this Oz outfit. There's a pretty good match, actually. The Z-Man, Tom Zank, against Razor Ramon uh, as the Diamond Stud, as Scott Hall was known. But some of these matches were actually pretty good matches if you stripped away the gimmicks. What I, I watched this show again about two or three weeks ago when Benny invited me on this show. And I'm watching this thing. I'm like, man, this isn't so bad. What's, what's bad about this show is the sizzle on top of the steak. The steak has got a lot of potential. You've got a lot of guys on this show, Ron Simmons versus yeah. Kevin Nash. That's a great match on paper if it's not Ron Simmons versus Oz. Tom Zink versus uh, Scott Hall is a pretty pretty good match if it's not Diamond Stud against uh, Tom Zink. Z-Man. Johnny B. Bad versus Flying Brian. They had a great match a couple of years later at Fall Brawl 95. At this point, with Flying Brian under the hood, which, which was really a, a defunct angle because he's feuding with Barry Windham, but now Barry Windham's turning babyface later on in the show. That's a dead gimmick for, for Brian Pillman, and he's facing Johnny B. Bad, who, who really was coming out of the preliminaries. Like, Johnny B. Bad was a preliminary guy that Dusty liked and gave a gimmick to him, but he would take – he was really a, uh, a personification of on-the-job trading. I'm talking yep, about Mark we'll, Merrill. Well, yeah, I was going to say, we'll get to – you you jumping jumping ahead a bit there, I'm Mike. Hot, we'll to, I'm getting hot. We'll, we'll get to the matches. To you know, it's really funny though. Mike said exactly the same thing that I kind of he said it in so many words. I said, you know, before the, the we started that there was a lot of great ingredients, but maybe the chef wasn't on board. Right. right. And and I, I'll admit, even for all the for all the the and trust me, I've got a lot more negative to say. This it this was not. One night, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, December to dismember, or some of those shows that are just absolute garbage, start to finish. This had moments that were entertaining. They just got completely drowned out by by the crap. I I've used the analysis before on the show. There's a term in nature called uh, reharvesting. It's certain creatures survive off the sustenance from larger creatures, like bugs that that eat through bear poop and whatnot. And and because, you know, larger animals don't digest everything. And I've always said shows like this, it's reharvesting. There's little nuggets of goodness. But to get through it, you got to go through a lot of shit. And that's the best way I could think to describe this show. And we'll get to that. Now, interestingly enough, um, something that, that, that gets missed a lot is before the show started, that there was a dark match uh, where the junkyard dog defeated Black Bart. And apparently I, I, I haven't been able to find video of that match, but apparently the the. From what I've read, it was well received by the crowd and was 
entertaining. This was 91. Junkyard Dog was on a kind of on a down slope from his career, but earlier the year he had won the when WCW had the six man tag titles. So he was I, I don't remember off the top of my head if he was still champion at the time, but he had gold only a few months before the show. So I mean it wasn't it wasn't by any means a, a veteran being thrown out. But um Benny, you you mentioned it the the scaffold match and that was the opening of the show you had pn news and bobby eaton against steve austin and terry uh, excuse me terrence taylor i almost said terry terrence taylor um now this is the match benny when you when we were talking about the show i said that that one I've, there's no never in my life have i seen a, a scaffold match that's truly entertained me there's been moments um Obviously, ECW had a couple, and and uh, for example, the the big tumble that say Jim Cornette took. Um, you know, there are some moments, but there's very few times you point, and, and really never you point at a scaffold match and go, "Hey, this match was amazing." And I mean, this match had Bobby Eaton, Steve Austin, and Terry Taylor. Excuse me, Terrence Taylor. You three of the best technical performers of their generations. Some would argue some of the better technical performers in the history of wrestling. And it was garbage. So Jim, I'm going to bounce it to you first. You've got the flag stipulation. You got to walk across, grab the flag, walk back across. What were you thinking watching this kind of talent that's just wasted on, as Mikey said, just a crap gimmick because it was so narrow. They were clearly more interested in not dying than they were in putting on a good match. What were your thoughts here? It was just so slow and just trudged along. And they, they and obviously you really couldn't do the fast paced match because they're up off the ground like that. But I felt really bad for Bobby Eaton more than anybody else in that old scenario. Just everything that he had went through coming up into that, getting split off from the midnight. And now he's getting shuffled around from these teams and, the PN news, you were just waiting for a catastrophe with him up on the scaffold. I've never I never really understood why you would start a, a pay-per-view with that match anyway. That's it just seems seems crazy to me. And they did the same thing the following pay-per-view when they had the Chamber of Horrors. I don't mean to jump on you guys, but they did the same thing there. They started the match with the big or started the pay-per-view with the big you know what I mean, the over the top match. It just doesn't make any sense. It was uh, didn't make any sense to me at all. I was shaking my head through the whole thing, and the match itself was ugly. You know, his uh, yeah, there's not too much to be redeemed there. Even with the three, like you say, the three great workers that were involved, you, you know, what I mean, there's only so much could be done. Absolutely, and it's funny you mention Halloween Havoc with the Chamber of Horrors match because that match did the same thing this one did. It really killed the crowd for a good chunk of the show when you start with a boring, awful match, that's that the, especially, I mean, this is Baltimore NWA crowd. They want good wrestling. And you start with this, they know you just wasted three good talents and PN news. Uh, you know, so, so they, they, it's, it's a bad start. Benny, what do you think? You know, I, I made some observations when I, when I uh, watched it, I guess one is, I, you know, when you every once in a while, when you take when you go for a job, you have to take that aptitude test. And you know, one of the questions is, which of these doesn't belong? And you got so you got uh, stunning Steve Austin, Terrence Taylor, Bobby Eaton and then PN News. So that's that's a pretty easy answer. I guess one of my questions is, why wasn't uh, Alexandra York out there with uh, Terrence Taylor? 
number one. And um, because she I, he was part of the foundation by then, I believe. Yeah, it's where the uh, Terrence name came from. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, and the other comment is, so Stunning Steve was out there with Lady Blossom. And one of the things, even though Alexandra York was not there, one of, one of my observations which watching, with, with watching this whole pay-per-view was the proliferation of managers. I couldn't believe how many there were. Yeah, actually, uh, that's a, a note we'll get to in a bit. But you did not have the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it, you basically had the entire night was managers. Uh, the fifth match of the evening, the fourth on the card, um, was, you, you mentioned Alexander York when she first came out. But really, it was not until, I kid you not, the, the ninth match of the evening, Nikita Koloff against Sting, that you had an empty ringside. It, you had 12 matches on the card, and 10 of them, well, it's technically 10 of them, Pauly dangerously wrestling as the manager position with managers. I mean, I'm all for bringing managers back. I think they can, I think they can add to it, but you can also, like you said, you can drown in it. But, uh, Benny, you, or excuse me, uh, Mikey, you, uh, you seem to have some, some thoughts here. What, what were your thoughts on the scaffold match? Well, my thoughts on the scaffold match, uh, Again, at the time watching it, it was absurd, ridiculous. It seems like they could have had a passable standard match. I think the problem is, and to give him some credit, PN News actually walks out to about, he, he does walk the length of the scaffold at 450 pounds or whatever yeah. he was. So, height. yeah, I mean, he, and the, the wooden floor for the scaffold. I think what this show reminds me of, guys, is a lot of modern era WWE stuff where the talent is trying. That's one thing I'll say about most wrestling that I've ever seen, whether it's WWE, WCW, ECW, the modern stuff. It seems like the wrestlers, for the most part, always really, really, really try. And what was the failure on this show, again is Jim Hurd was like a non-wrestling guy. He had a slice of experience with wrestling, but it's almost like uh, you can just really see the roadmap of maybe a casual wrestling fan who's giving you a, a comic book version of what wrestling should be from a casual wrestling fan's perspective. Right. Like you guys, I never thought about this manager thing before, but it's like, a guy who's sort of a wrestling fan, he thinks, oh, Bobby the Brain Heenan or J.J. Dillon, okay, there needs to be a manager for every match. Okay, we've got a, you know, we've got some gimmicks on the wrestling, like a, a Jimmy Boogie Woogie Man Valiant versus the Assassin is maybe a gimmick match he had seen, and he takes that to the next level. Well, this guy has to be the Oz guy because we want to make, you know, Ted Turner happy with the, the Wizard of Oz movie, and and these have to be the computer lady uh, stable of the of the York Foundation. So everything is just kind of broad stroked, uh, meaning that everything's an exaggeration. And Dan, you made a good point. This is Baltimore. I was there for the '88 bash, which was really the 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 farewell, the swan song of the Horsemen. The '88 bash is the obituary of the the golden era Horsemen. Wyndham with belt with a U.S. belt, Flair with the world title, Tully and Arn. Well, we're three years removed from that. People were still expecting to see Rick and, and Luger in the cage. Instead, everything's changed. I guess my feeling, if, if you want to know my feeling, the scaffold match, it sucked. 
but I do feel like there was some earnest attempt, but also I'm kind of glad these guys didn't do much more because imagine if Stone Cold had fallen from that thing, we never would have had Austin 316, you know, six, right. six or seven years later. So uh, although the match itself stunk, it's better that it stunk and they were safe rather than anyone breaking their leg or their neck. Yeah. No, I, I they ahead, just look terrified. I mean, that, that was my one observation. They all, they just, the whole onus of the whole focus of that match was them not trying to fall, which I don't blame them. I would do the exact same thing. I don't want to, you know, that would be a pretty nasty fall. Yeah. And, and it was, it was, again, it was kind of crappy. I, I, I question one thing about it uh, before we move on to the next match is the ending. I almost, I almost feel like Bobby Eaton just kind of went into business for himself because if you notice the bell ringing and him grabbing yeah. the flag doesn't quite line up. It's almost like he said, I'm yeah. done. Let's get out of here. And and that was it. And, well, and the, really the whole hairspray thing happened after supposedly yeah, the, the match exactly was what I was about to get to. Then, then the hairspray comes in, which should have been the ending. I really think that Eaton, at least leading the charge was kind of like guys were done and he just walked off. But you know, the follow-up, however, the second match on the card and something uh, Mikey alluded to was actually a, a decent match. The, the diamond stud Scott Hall, who had debuted previously at the, uh, at the previous pay-per-view he had debuted at super brawl uh, with his manager, Diamond Dallas Page, another manager, defeating Tom Zank, the Z-Man. Now, this was, Mikey, I'm, I'm going to give you this one because we really, uh, there's really not much to go on other than the fact that this was a, a good passable match, but uh, you, this was kind of one of the highlights. What do you think? I think it was a highlight because I think Scott Hall, guess what? As a wrestling fan at the time, a pretty smart wrestling fan at a young age, um, I didn't put two and two together that the Diamond Stud was Scott Hall until he became Razor Ramon a year or so later in the WWF, and that's when all the things came together. You know what I mean? Because he did a heck of a job, and the story is that Diamond Dallas Page uh, greased Scott Hall's hair back and, and brought Diamond Stud, the new presentation of Scott Hall, over to, uh, to uh, Dusty, and they fooled him because they didn't realize that this was the same guy as Scott Hall who was an overjobber two years earlier. Like if you go back to 1989, Scott Hall mm -hmm. is in the great American bash of the two ring battle Royal. It made no sense that Scott Hall, who was so full of promise in the AWA was suddenly a jobber in 1989 WCW, but there he is losing matches to Terry Funk on Saturday morning. Anyway, this match was good. Uh, the Z man, he passed away, I think seven or eight years ago, Tom Zank, but he had a really pretty damn good run in WCW as a lower mid-card, mid-card, upper mid-card babyface. He kind of floated in those three positions. Uh, Zenk had some great tag team matches with Flying Brian. They were U.S. tag team champions. He actually had a great junior heavyweight match with uh, Flying Brian. I guess for me, guys, I always look at this type of era, even the Jim Hurd era of WCW with nostalgia. This was really like a time when I was cementing myself as an NWA fan. I even, or WCW fan or both, I saw Ric Flair going over to the WWF and winning the title there as like a victory for the NWA and WCW. You know what I mean? That's how demented I was about this whole thing. So I like this match. To answer your question, um, it's interesting that you talk about the manager thing. I mean, the, it was almost like Humperdinck and 
DDP were like co-managers of the Freebirds, and then they had the Diamond Stud. It's like you had one stable with two managers. They called Humperdinck like the road boss or something. So <laughs> anyway, it was a good solid match. The the stuff before the match of the women pulling off DD uh, the Diamond Studs, um, you know, chaps. Yeah, his hairway pants. Right. But it was fun. I mean, it was a good, solid, quick match. I liked it. I didn't know that the toothpick started back with the diamond stud. I had no idea until I watched the pay-per-view. That whole gimmick is The whole Razor Ramon gimmick is the diamond stud in different clothes. You change the outfit, it's the same gimmick. But, like, when he got, when they brought, he was mentioning they couldn't do nothing with him with Scott Hall when he came from the AWA. He was this big muscle bound baby face and they had nothing to do with the guy. They put that gator gimmick on him, Scott Gator Hall, and shot those vignettes of him stomping around in a swamp. And then, like you say, what, two or three months later, here he is back as the diamond stud with the gimmick that's gonna cement his career, you know? It's, yeah, no, uh, Jim nailed it on the head. The any the uh Razor Ramon was the diamond stud after he moved to Florida. I mean, you had go ahead, Benny. No, like after he moved to Miami and just acquired a really <laughs> right. crappy accent. Yeah, the, the the diamond stud got recruited by Scarface. But um, something <laughs> else to, to before we move on, uh, I think it's important to note because he doesn't really get a lot of credit, like you said, Benny. Is Tom Zank was he was kind of the the Sean Waltman of his generation in that they put him in the matches that they needed to look good. Um, he was the one who wrestled the, well, what do they call him? The, uh, the phantom when Rick rude went back to, to uh, WCW in 91, 92, he was yeah, Ricky steamboat, uh, the, the free birds, the, the midnight express, whenever you needed a good match that, you know, you, you could have somebody that could would lose and everybody still look like a million bucks. Zank was the one that did that. I think he doesn't get enough credit for, really being as good and I don't even want to call him an enhancement talent. Cause he had it. He had a, a run with gold and, and some high profile matches, but he was just an enha- the kind of guy that enhanced everybody he was in a ring with. And I enjoyed the Z hose that he came out with. <laughs> yeah, was, now, yeah. Go ahead, Mikey. There was a lot of stuff on this show guys that I didn't remember as I've watched the show more than once. I watched it live as it happened on pay-per-view and I watched it a few other times on tape. I was all, it, I mean, it's almost like Mandela effect moments. Uh, when you get to the Elegante match, I'll get into more of that. But yeah, yeah. Zank coming out with the, the women. And it, it's like I said, guys, it really did seem like with all this flourish, all this sizzle, um, how can you afford to hire these models and these other accruement people? And you can't keep your Ric Flair on the paycheck. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know what I mean? So. Anyway, but yeah, Zank, Zank was a quality wrestler. I think he was just a solid mid-card babyface, and, and good for you, Dan, for putting him over because he was a solid wrestler, and he, he was also one of the er- earliest internet wrestlers, like one of the wrestlers who first had like a website or a forum and was talking trash about the business. So he, Zank and, and like Honky Tonk Man were some of the first guys to do that type of thing. Absolutely. And uh, moving from good good talent in a good place to good talent in a bad place, the next match was Ron Simmons against Oz. Now, I mean, I, 
you cannot. I honestly think we could spend the rest of the show just talking about how bad the Oz gimmick was, and we still wouldn't scratch the surface of how bad the Oz gimmick was. So, I mean, you have Kevin Nash, who had just recently been Vinny Vega, or excuse me, the um, uh, he became Vinny Vegas. He was the the Master Blaster. Thank you, Master Blaster. You know, um, you had this this big muscular talent coming out in the green robe with the fake beard uh, accompanied by the wizard who was Kevin Sullivan in a really terrible mask with a monkey that on his shoulder that didn't want to cooperate monkey went into business for himself. Um, <laughs> but you, you had the, the really terrible costumes for the wizard of Oz extras. And I mean, something I didn't catch until I rewatched it. Maybe it's the HDTV, maybe not. But when he scared off the Wizard of Oz cast and they ran off, when the t- the actor dressed like the Tin Man turned around, you could see that it was like three quarters of a costume, kind of like those ones you get at the, at, the, at the party city where it was just tied in the back and you could see the shirt and stuff he was wearing underneath. Like, it was awful. But this whole gimmick is terrible. This intro is terrible. But, um... Ron Simmons did again. Mikey, you talk about doing what you can to salvage the match. Uh, we've each taken a turn. Jim, you drew the short straw on this one. You get to be the first to talk about this match. Well, thankfully that they they didn't have Ron Simmons go under to such a horrible gimmick. As I was re-watching the match, as it started, I was thinking to myself, my God, I can't believe they're going to put Oz over on Ron Simmons. Which, yeah, that would have been horrible for me. I did not realize, and I just now learned, that that was Kevin Sullivan in that horrible costume. That it looked like that little guy off that He-Man movie, which was also a piece of crap. Uh, it was, yeah, the it was terrible all the way around. You had the big backdrop, the big the fabric backdrop of the Oz Castle, and all that. It was just, it was bad news all the way around. I felt bad for Ron Simmons. <laughs> Jim, I'll tell you what, you're a uh... You're a friend of the show, and uh, we definitely contributor on our page, and and I love your your articles. But I swear, if I ever hear you say anything bad about Gwildor again, I will personally come to Colorado and, and hurt you. He was the <laughs> highlight of that movie. Oh my lord! Well, to say that that's a highlight of that movie, I guess that's like uh, saying he's the biggest fly on the shit pile. <laughs> <laughs> To be talking no smack about Dolph Lundgren as He Man, that was guy was my hero. Um, but no, this this match again, you you said it right. It was the, it was the proper outcome, and this goes to what Benny and I had talked about earlier with the Baltimore crowd. The the crowd just absolutely crapped all over everything when the Oz gimmick started, when the intro started. They poor Kevin Nash could not salvage it. Not, not even his amazingly well and clearly not spray painted gray hair. It was just, this was just bad start to finish. Uh, Benny, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I did notice that, uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan didn't really do much of anything as the wizard. And I think the one time he did interfere, you could see his sweatpants <laughs> under his robe. And that was pretty much the highlight of the match for me. But, uh, I, I, now I have a question. Was this his last match as Oz, and did he go right from Oz to Vinny Vegas right after this? I think it was. I think he only wrestled three times on television as Oz, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I think two clashes in this pay per view, or maybe yeah. a clash in two pay per views, something like that. I think he only did three shots as Oz. Yeah. If if I could say something though. Go ahead, Mike. 
devil devil's advocate to defend um maybe maybe just big picture stuff trying to be positive here positive page right um this look we all mock and ridicule oz but it's kind of like triple h doing the uh one minute job to ultimate warrior at wrestlemania 12. some of these guys who endured stuff like that namely triple h and in this case nash kevin nash because they've kind of they know what they don't want to do in wrestling because they've had to do it you know like they've had to go out there and in triple h's case put ultimate warrior over in 63 seconds and Kevin Nash's case, put on this ridiculous green mask and a hood and a and a crown and your your Oz, right? Because they know what doesn't work and they know what sucks and they know what the fans aren't appreciating, maybe that gives them cause to make better choices moving forward. Because then the next thing is like, oh Kevin, Kevin, we want you to be Vinny Vegas, or hey, you got a phone call from Rick Steiner. He he's telling you that Shawn Michaels wants you to be his bodyguard, and Kevin Nash jumps at that. Maybe for some of these wrestlers, with anybody in life, if you know situations that are horrible and are embarrassing and are career stifling, you go through that anguish and that degradation, and then you know, hey, I'm going to do something better. And uh, with Kevin Nash, Vinny Vegas was an improvement. And uh, obviously, Diesel was an improvement. And Diesel 95, like the Survivor Series Diesel, was a big improvement. And mm-hmm. then when he had the big money offer to come back to, to just be Kevin Nash, isn't it funny that after all these gimmicks, the Master Blaster tag team, Oz, Vinny Vegas, uh, Diesel, Hardcore Diesel, but the one that really people like the most is NWO Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash. So it's just kind of interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like they say, uh, you know, the best the best gimmicks are just you turned up to eleven. I mean, all all the years of success and his best character was literally just him being him. Yeah. But moving well, to on, extent, go ahead. It's going to be the card. It's going to be the card that he's dealt too. I mean, he's not an he's not a, an on top star at that time. He's working his way up. He sees the things that's going on. He sees that Heard just fired the biggest guy in the company two weeks earlier, you know what I mean? It's so I think some of these guys might've been in the position too. This is what I got to do right now. This is what I got to go through. You know what I mean? And if, it's, if I want a job, this is what it's got to be. And, you know, I think that had, you got to factor that into it as well. Cause you there know, was a I, lot I, of great workers with a lot of crappy gimmicks in the, in, in that two year span. I, I think you guys are really onto something here. You know, it, it's like one of these things where, you know, you're given a job to do. And you can either bitch and not do it, or you can kind of, you know, bitch to yourself and do it. But, you know, Kevin Nash maybe bitched to himself, but he did it. And I think the fact that he went through the, you know, the the Oz and the Master Blaster and the Vinny Vegas made him more appealing to to Vince McMahon because, like, this guy, he's a team player. He, you know, he, he, he does what he he does what he's told. He does what's, what's yeah. best for business. So maybe maybe ultimately, like Mike said, it really helped him in the long run. Yeah, speaking, actually, that that's good you say that. Speaking of playing ball, the next match had what was, uh, I, I personally I, I believe was, in my opinion, was the best match of the night just because these two knew each other so well. Um, I even liked the story was uh, Robert Gibson against Richard Morton. Now, I said Richard Morton, not Ricky Morton. This is a guy who, even today, is still active, still just a, a, a draw for, for the conventions and the fans still has the prettiest mullet in the business. Somebody made the conscious decision uh, to turn Ricky Morton heel 
Uh, Robert Gibson had been injured, so Ricky Morton had kind of been going at it as a singles competitor. Hadn't had the best luck as a singles competitor. Ended up turning on, uh, turning on, <clears throat> excuse me, Robert Gibson when he came back, siding with Alexandra York. Uh, of course, she became uh, everyone. You know, for the most part, that's the the future Terry Runnels. Um, but interestingly enough, and I want to get to gimmicks for a second, is her persona, this York Foundation. She had the big big laptop, well, tablet, computer, whatever you want to call it. And and it, they analyzed, the computer would analyze talents. That was the storyline. They could analyze your opponents and by using the computer program or figure out the way to beat them. Now, obviously in the in the 21st century, we know that's not how computers work. But back then, the, the personal computer was still a relatively new concept. And how many how many cartoons or TV shows did one floppy disk have the virus or code you needed to to save the world or destroy it? You know, computers had this almost cartoony superpower, and I think it fit perfectly. And as a huge fan of the Rock and Roll Express, if either of them was to have a successful run as a heel, I think Ricky Morton is the right call, um, just because he's. No offense to the man, still a huge fan, but he could work circles around Robert Gibson in most cases. So he kind of had that that persona. But these guys, I mean, uh, there was a spot in the match which I again I talk about the story. Ricky or excuse me, Richard Morton kept rolling out of the ring, powdering out, and he would they would, they would he would consult. They checked the computer. I almost wonder if the microphones were better, like what they were talking about, you know, but. He kept going back, back and forth, back and forth. But there was a spot where they kind of both ended up on the ramp because this was back, if you remember, when the ramp was at ring level. And they did a matching drop kick, and they both just kind of kicked mm -hmm. each other's feet. And it was just so smooth where, if I can get off topic for just a second, I'm very critical of some of the, the current wrestling today because it looks very worked. It's 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 almost like a... a Choreographed. Like Thank you. Choreographed. It reminds me more of a, a of a of a stage like a fight show you'd see at an amusement park, you know, a stunt show than a fight. These guys clearly went over this ahead of time. They worked together. They were talking, but it never looked overly choreographed. It looked good. It looked fun. Uh, hot, the match ended with uh, typical heel fashion. There was a distraction. Uh, Richard Morton hit Robert Gibson with the computer. One, two, three. Match went about was about fifteen minutes or so. It was one of the longer, one of one of the longer matches of the night. But really, this was like like Mikey said, not everything about this show was bad. The crowd was into this. I thought it was great. Um, but M Mikey, you you had you were kind of looking for the positive here, and this is truly a positive of the night. What do you think? It, it was positive, and the funny thing is, Dan, I was always a very anti Rock and Roll Express young fan. Like I, I had signs that had like I would cut out the heads of a rock and roll express uh, tag team poster. And I had one for Ricky Morton and I had it taped and I, the, the sign read, uh, uh, wanted like a wanted sign. It said wanted then Ricky's face for being a sissy. So that was my Ricky Morton sign. And then the Robert Gibson one, I took the Robert Gibson, uh, same thing, cut his head out. And put it on a sign and on, on the poster board. And I put a bandage over his lips, like a bandage over his mouth, like a real bandage on the poster of Robert Gibson's mouth. And I wrote, poor Robert, semicolon, has no tongue. <laughs> and I, I brought these things to the Baltimore arena uh, for a match they had against Tully and Arn. And trust me, I was getting heat 
from the young girls in the audience. They didn't appreciate this. So um, that was the type of fan that I was. So I was very anti-Rock and Roll Express. I, um, you know, at the time, they were something, you know, you could say equivalent for today's young fan, like a, a babyface Young Bucks or something like that, or Rockers, you know, for the WWF fans a generation later or half a generation later. To me, um, oddly enough, at the time, I thought this match was kind of sad. Because, like, it was kind of the end of an era. Like, you're really getting it home. Like, okay, Dusty's at this show, but he's doing commentary. Flair's not here. Tully and Arn are gone. And, um, you know, Tully's gone. Arn's here with no Tully. The, the horsemen are kind of broken up because Flair's gone. And then you've got the Rock and Roll Express with one guy really beating the crap out of the other guy trying to dislocate his knee. I thought the heel work by Morton tearing up that knee and ripping, like literally ripping Gibson's tights mm. was pretty dastardly <laughs> heel work. So I, I think you're right. Ricky had the charisma to be a heel, but in a way it's a well executed match, but it's almost like a match that makes you feel bad. Cause it just, it's like these two guys should be together. It was good that they broke apart for a while. Even the Freebirds broke apart for a while uh, in Georgia at 81. But, but this was just kind of a, a tough match to watch. Hey, guys, I just have to take a – you guys keep talking. I, I have a, I have to let this dog out. The dog's very excited, so I'm just going to – I'll be right back in a minute. No worries. Actually, um, that's a great segue. Uh, Jim and Benny, I'm going to throw this one to you. But the next match was a six-man <clears throat> elimination match with the Freebirds. Uh, this was Jimmy Garvin and Michael Hayes with Bad Street, who was – uh, under the mask, and that was uh, Brad Armstrong, or excuse me, uh, Brad James, and uh, uh, I think was the name he was wrestling at before, but Brad Armstrong with yeah. the infamous Big Daddy Dink, who we knew as Oliver Humperdink from the WWF, against the Young Pistols, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong, which uh, as a fan, I'll admit at 91, I didn't realize there were siblings wrestling against each other, and Dustin Rhodes. Now, Mikey, I want to lead into that because Mikey said Dusty was on commentary. One of the backstage notes from this show, and this match is where I think it's most important, is Dusty was also the head booker at the time. So you you have his son uh, in this match in a, a six-man elimination. Uh, but Jim, Benny, I'm going to bounce this to you guys. Walk us through uh, this match, which I think was another good one, too. One of the one of the back-to-back good matches here. I'll let the guests go first. Go ahead, Jim. Well, for for me with the Freebirds, um, I'm always going to be a traditionalist. I always like the the Buddy Buddy Roberts Bam Bam and Michael Hayes Freebirds. I wasn't a big fan of the Jimmy Garvin Freebird. Um, Brad Armstrong worked his ass off under the mask. Uh, he was uh, he was bouncing all over the place. It was it was really good. Danny. Well, first of all, I have to take a page out of today's wrestler and get my shit in about the previous match. So um, th- I wanted to make two quick observations about the, the Ricky Morton and, and Gibson match. One is that, um, you know, I really I really thought Ricky did a good job as a heel. But the, the one thing I didn't thought was bad was he really didn't do anything to differentiate himself from the babyface Ricky Morton. He, he came out wearing the Rock and Roll Express T-shirt. He still had the mullet. You know, why why do you do that if you want to set you separate yourself from Robert Gibson? You're wearing the same stuff as he did. And the other thing was he spent a good part of 15 minutes working on Gibson's leg, which was great heel work. 
But then he won the match by hitting him over the head with the uh, the Wang work processor or whatever else, you know, whatever that was he had. <laughs> Why didn't he just bash him on the knee with it and make him tap out or something like that? So I just thought that the the ending didn't really match the whole psychology of the match. But you know, getting back to this match, I, I just my observation was this was the beginning of the Dustin Rhodes push because number one, you had that interview backstage, and uh, I'm echoing here. You had uh, Dustin Rhodes backstage, and he sounded just like Dusty. I, purposely, I'm sure. Yeah, it really sounded just like Dusty. And then during the match, you know, the the, the he, Dustin carried the match. He did the last two eliminations, and then he shows up in another match as one of the Lumberjacks, and he figures in the finish of that match. So I think there was a little bit too much Dustin Rhodes in this match, in this on this card, I guess. Yeah, I could see that. Actually, Benny, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Dustin Rhodes had all three eliminations because both the 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 uh, Young Pistols were eliminated by two different combinations of double DDTs. And then Dustin Rhodes had to roll up and then they fought out with the two on one. I, I think one of them was a, Michael Hayes got DQ for throwing somebody over the top rope. I thought that was one of the yeah. eliminations. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. I, I was thinking that because it was of the spot. Yeah, the old uh, top rope rule. But then he he got the other two for sure. Correct. Yeah. So I mean, he was maybe. Yeah, you're right. I'm thinking. I was thinking he got every elimination, but he did. He just got the two that were actually pinned. But this match, I mean, really, it told a good story. And like you said, it was really the uh, uh, maybe the next generation onward. You saw that with the Rock, or excuse me, Rocky Maivia, his debut at Survivor Series. Mikey mentioned Diesel at the Survivor Series. Multi-man elimination matches have always been a good way of pushing somebody. And this was really the intro of, hey, you know, Dustin Rhodes, who unfortunately would not last nearly as long in WCW as he could have, uh, getting fired along with Bunkhouse Buck after they both bladed in that King of the Road match. Uh, but this was really a push. And and I think, Benny, it, the reason I wanted to mention Dusty being the booker is – I didn't think about it as a fan, as a kid, but watching it as an adult, knowing that you can kind of, okay, I kind of get, you can still look good without being a superhero. And Dustin Rhodes, he was booked super strong and daddy took care of him on this night. But even, even without that, this was still a great match. Uh, I think you had it. Mikey, you have any thoughts here? It was actually Blacktop Bully that you're thinking of in uh, Uncensored 95. It was what did Black I say? You said Bunkhouse Buck. You're right. I'm sorry. Blacktop Bully. Yeah, the uh, uh, Repo Man. Right. Crusher Darsaw, Barry yes. Darsaw. Can, can, yeah, you imagine, Darsaw. can you imagine that four grown men are uh, correcting each other on Blacktop Bully versus Bunkhouse Buck? <laughs> but, and, and there's other grown men that are listening to this. Um, but in any event, uh, I thought it was a good six-man elimination. Uh, you know, but if, if, once again, not to do the whole overview thing, but really, if you look at the balance of this card, it's only halfway through the show. We've had a scaffold match. We've had a, a six-man elimination match. It's just gimmick after gimmick, and there's more to come. And I think that it, it's it's kind of like that TNA show, uh, Six Sides of Steel, Lockdown, the, the yearly pay-per-view, or even Hell in the Cell for WWE fans. It's when you have too many gimmick matches on one show, then it, it takes away the power of just one or two gimmick matches. Right. right. And um, Bischoff makes that point to give him credit. 
he makes that point a lot on his podcast at A3 Weeks, but I'm making that point here as well. It, it really becomes clear, and no offense to Jim Hurd, uh, Oz, actually, Kevin Nash blames the whole Oz thing on Dusty. Have you ever seen the Kevin Nash shoot? He blames Dusty for the Oz uh, thing. But it really is like a person who's not a wrestling fan but just knows enough to throw all this crap at the wall. And uh, it's interesting that Armstrong wrestled his brother in this. You know, Brad Armstrong and was Scott Armstrong. Is it Scott or Steve? Steve Armstrong as one of the young pistols. Um, it's kind of interesting that you have an Armstrong versus Armstrong, which doesn't really get right. talked about a whole lot. Well, it's important to note, too, that that after you had the elimination, he was out both ways. He rescued uh, – you saw you saw Brad Armstrong as Brad Armstrong in the in the night, <laughs> and as Bad Street earlier earlier in the evening. So, yeah. you know, it, it was a, kind of the whammy there. Now this next match, I'm I want to kind of gloss over because uh, of the crowd, but the next match was the Yellow Dog, who we uh, we talked about earlier. That was Brian Pillman. He had lost a Loser Leaves Town match. Now everybody knew the Yellow Dog was Brian Pillman. As a matter of fact. Mikey, you mentioned um, that that Jim Ross calls him Flying Brian at some point during the match. Um, but the problem and the reason, like I said, I want to gloss over it is the this was still. Yes, Baltimore isn't exactly uh, the South, but this was still your typical NWA Southern wrestling crowd. Johnny B. Bad at the time was not a gimmick that they had embraced yet. He would eventually become very popular uh, but Brian Pillman lead the, led the crowd in some really awful chants directed at Johnny B. Bad. Um, I don't know if the network edited them out uh, or Peacock edited them out, it but it was it, yeah, yeah it, it was yes. they did okay yeah, but they were they were chanting some some homophobic slurs among other things. And now, interestingly enough, before we move on, um, by the way, Brian Brian Pillman won by disqualification uh, again. Theodore Long, another manager, Johnny B. Bad had just two weeks previously to debuting as Johnny B. Bad lost a squash jobber match as Mark Marrow. So for, for anybody paying attention, this was another, holy crap, that's the guy I just saw last week. Um, but yeah, it was it was rough. Uh, me personally, maybe that's what I get for, for watching an old DVD instead of the Peacock. But uh, yeah, I thought this was rough to get through. Now, the next match, Ooh. Can we examine this match? Jeez, we, we can't gloss over the yellow dog, can we? I mean, well, I mean, we could talk about the yellow dog. I'd rather not talk about the the. I mean, I guess we can, as long as we don't don't touch too much on the crowd. It's just the well, the 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 sure. crowd reaction really soured this match for me. Well, but okay, go ahead, Mikey. Well, it's interesting that Pillman as the yellow dog. It's actually edited out of the Peacock Network because I know the stuff you're talking about. There's also a moment where Pillman looks in the mask. It's a very weird camera angle. Pillman and like Johnny B. Bad, who are about to wrestle each other, are almost standing at the ropes together, almost like a tag team, with like three feet apart from them. They're about to wrestle each other, and Pill uh, and Johnny B. Bad and and Teddy Long are kind of playing goo goo face to the camera, and then the camera pans to to Pillman as the yellow dog, and he says uh, a homosexual uh, insult. Johnny B. Uh, you know, homosexual, uh, right. insulting. and that when that happens on the Peacock network, they black the screen out and it says, uh, due to technical, 
considerations with the original tape. This this show is being formatted the best possible way. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's the time when Pillman said that they 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 blamed it on a technical issue. They blamed it on technical issues. That was actually up for quite a bit of time, though, wasn't it, Mike? Well, it might have been on the WWE Network, but on the Peacock. It, no, I'm it, saying that like on on Peacock, that that description was up there for quite a bit of time. But, but but the time I got to it, yeah, it was on for about five seconds, five or six seconds. So, because it was like Pillman says this straight to camera, and you know Pillman was a rough guy around the edges. You know what I mean? I mean, there's all these backstage stories about Pillman being rough around the edges, but I thought he was a great on-screen character. But the point is, it was a different time. It's not to excuse behavior but it was just a culture i mean there's a game where christian leitner in college basketball is getting chanted at by the fans in in a similar way it wasn't just wrestling fans in baltimore is my point no Uh, it wasn't i was just saying that that you wouldn't if you think about the 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 raw animosity from the nwa crowds you wouldn't get those kind of chants today maybe some some parts of the country still but not your you go to a typical AEW. WWE indie show, you're not gonna maybe I don't know maybe Sunny Kiss maybe yeah well Sunny Sunny Kiss is 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 one of the most popular guys in AEW right when he wrestles and it's flamboyancy and it's 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 out and proud and everything anyway to get off the topic as far as the 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 I want I did want to say if there's any see this is how things in wrestling can sometimes get forgotten about. The yellow dog was kind of a cool thing because Brian Pillman is actually mocking Barry Windham because Barry Windham had wrestled as the dirty yellow dog in Florida championship wrestling when he got humiliated by Ron Bass. Ron Bass put a, a saddle on his back and rode him around the ring in front of Gordon Soley and, and all of Florida championship wrestling. And so Barry Windham didn't even lose a loser leave town match. He was just humiliated and he came back as this dirty yellow dog character and he had a chain. So that was going back to like 83, right? Now you fast forward to 91, and because Dusty Rhodes remembers all this stuff, and he was there for Florida, and he's there for this, they're trying to reinvent that like they did with the Midnight Rider. And what it was was that Brian Pillman and Ellie Gante lost a loser leaves a fall. Loser of the fall loses leaves town match to Arn and Barry at a Clash of Champions in May of 91. So when... Pillman loses the fall and he leaves the WCW and he comes back as Yellow Dog. It's a direct reference to Dirty Yellow Dog. All that's great. The thing is, those fans of WCW NWA didn't really know everything that I just said, unless they were also fans of Florida. Right. And they were not refreshed with this memory. It was never presented. They never showed showed old clips of Florida. They never even brought it up. So it's like, unless you're a Pro Wrestling Illustrated fan from 83 who stuck around until 91, you have no idea of this storyline and, and the significance. Yeah, well, and, you see, I was going to say, you see that in the uh, the Ted DiBiase's manservant character was named Virgil specifically as a jab. And how many people knew knew whose real name that was? Sure. Right, right. It's 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 inside stuff for inside stuff. I guess my disappointment, guys, is that, like I said, the yellow dog Brian Pillman thing became a defunct or or a or what's the term for a president who's no longer got power? Uh, dead goose. Or what's it called? Not deposed. Like a, a, a like sitting, a sitting duck. D- sitting duck. Lame duck. Lame duck. Lame, lame duck. Yeah. It became a lame duck angle because Wyndham's in this mask. It's all about feuding with Barry Wyndham. 
and Barry Windham an hour and a half later is turning babyface by default. So my point is sometimes what it's almost it's almost like in pro wrestling, you need a continuity expert. Hey guys, before we change Barry into a babyface, let's have him and the yellow dog have some type of conclusion. Where like if Yellow Dog beats Wyndham on this Saturday morning show, Barry, uh, Brian Pillman gets to come back as Brian Pillman. Just something. And I think that's the frustration of pro wrestling fans like myself is when you don't tie up loose ends, it makes you feel like this storyline didn't count for anything. Why did I invest my time in caring about this storyline if you didn't tie up the loose end? And why should I care about the future storylines? If you're not going to tie up your storylines, whether it be WCW in 1991 or WWE in 2021, why should we as fans keep on investing in your product, in your storylines, if you don't deliver a beginning, middle, and end? That's right. it. That's all. I'm done now. Had to, had to throw that in there, didn't you? Well, I'm just trying, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to show that what I think happens, Dan and Benny and, and uh, our, you know, our friend here is that sometimes the wrestling powers that be, the fans, the promoters, the wrestlers, they think that stuff doesn't matter and it doesn't count. But my opinion is if you're going to put the hassle of putting this stuff on television and expecting people to watch it, it has to count. It has to count for something. Otherwise, what are we all doing here? So make it work. Yeah. I can see that. Where were we? Uh, well, moving on, actually, the, the this next match, Benny, you kind of already talked about Big Josh and Black Blood, another manager moment with Kevin Sullivan and a lumberjack match. This is really, to, to kind of get some time back, this is really a nothing match. Uh, Dusty interfered. The lumberjacks were awful and that they all they spent the entire match just fighting each other on the outside yeah. this really i mean jim correct me if i'm wrong here because you know you, you've touched on it in some of the articles this was really a throwaway like this match could have not existed and nothing would have changed storyline or pay-per-view wise it was a time filler in my opinion but yeah uh, who was that as a just a note of interest who was the black blood was that uh billy jack haynes was that uh billy jack haynes yeah yes, that was billy jack haynes yeah i thought I thought so. Yeah, I thought so. And I just of to make course, sure. big big Josh was Matt Bourne, who would go on to become uh, the original Doink. So actually, nice. a great a great feud from Portland from back in the day. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, but the <laughs> following that that spectacle of a match, which really, when you have a lumberjack match that's only five minutes, you know it's filler. It's not meant to be anything big. Uh, moving on though to a match that was also about five minutes, which is about five minutes too long. You had, uh, you had one man gang against Eligante, the, the soon to be giant Gonzalez. Now this match comes from the previous pay-per-view super brawl where Eligante, <coughs> excuse me, Eligante defeated Sid vicious in his go away match or I guess go home match, but his last match in WCW and one man gang interfered uh, at the end. And it led to some brawling there, but this was, uh, we've talked about Haas matches, Benny, you know how much I love the big Haas fight. This was two big guys fighting. Unfortunately, this was two big guys who can't fight. Uh, <laughs> one man gang was already on, on the down and Eligante was pretty much immobile and just terrible uh, around the board. Um, Jim, I'm going to give you this one. Uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, 
five minute spectacle? Well, the the entry with Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan was looking nine kinds of crazy. If 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 y'all paid attention to that at all, he was. It was the whole thing. It was just over the top from the beginning. El Gigante comes out with the three or four midgets in tow. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, and the, and the one-man gang, I'm not sure what incarnation of the one-man gang we got with that character, but it was nothing like any one-man gang we had seen previously. It was uh, it was laughable all the way around, and I did several times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Elegante did did end up winning with, uh, I'm not 100% sure what that was supposed to be, but he had, go ahead, Benny. A very poor reverse clothesline, I guess. is. Yeah, I'm not sure what he was going for. Almost looked like a botch, but so does everything else he did. But I, I did like that, that Kevin Sullivan invoked Abuda Dean, you know, reminiscent of the, the Florida. I, I really yeah, liked that. Yeah, his old Florida. Yeah. And keep, keep Florida in mind because we're going to talk about it here in a minute. Um, but the next match, and Benny, I'm going to throw this one to you. This was Nikita Koloff against Sting in a Russian chain match. Uh, common, uh, I've we've seen ch- chains, bull ropes, but this match was the the touch the four corners, and this was one of the hotter feuds going at the time. I'm going to give this one to you. Uh, what do you What are your thoughts on on this match, which was another highlight of the evening? I, I liked it. I mean, I thought it was a pretty good match. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of both of these guys, two of my favorites from the mid to late 80s. Um, you know, Nikita gets the Duke, but I, I don't think it the loss hurts Sting because he wasn't pinned. You know, and it was one of those things where, you know, that, that last that last corner, he, he beat him by a, a millisecond. So enough to get Nikita the win, but not really enough to, you know, throw any kind of negative hurt on Sting. But I, I mean, I thought it was an entertaining match. Um, like I said, you know, two two of my favorites from back in the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah, and Sting did get his heat back pretty quickly, beating Nikita up with the chain. The, now, the chain wedgie yeah, at the end. Exactly. I want to invoke, um, Mikey, you talk about what's old is new again. I didn't even put the connection together until I watched this again. Um leading up to this show was this is the exact, almost exact same match and ending as the Texas bull rope match between JBL and Eddie Guerrero, where JBL won the title. Eddie tried to jump over him, ended up pushing him into the corner. It was almost shot for shot. The four corners, the chain, uh, it was almost shot for shot, the same match. However, I want to talk one difference is in the, in the bull rope match, there was a pretty, I was probably about 12 feet. I would say there was a pretty good chunk of rope and you had moments where Eddie was able to do his stuff and JBL was able to do his stuff with the power in this match. It seemed like the chain was way too short for what they were trying to do. And there was it really, I mean, they I, both a testament to their professionalism because they still pulled off a great match. But there were definitely spots and moments where, especially in Sting's case, where it seemed like the chain handicapped them. What do you think? I think you're probably right. And I, I think of a photograph I saw in an old wrestling magazine of Michael Hayes and Kerry Von Erich literally having a handcuff match. Can you imagine that? The, the mm. guys are handcuffed by the wrist. Like each guy has, they're handcuffed to each other, Hayes and Carey. So uh, that was probably even a worse match. And I don't think that's on, on tape anywhere. I think you got a good point. I wanted to say real quick about those other uh, matches. Um, to me, couldn't a Billy Jack Haynes versus 
uh, Matt Bourne match. That would be a good match for that's a paper. That's a great match. Yeah. Right. And and once again, it's it's not to to crucify him because I, but Jim Hurd just it's too much stuff. Uh, the the Elegante thing I wanted to say for a second because it was almost a Mandela effect for me. If people are familiar with that term, when memories don't match up, I've watched the show several times before, and I could not remember the little people coming in with Elegante. When I was watching this show three weeks ago to prep for this podcast, and here comes Eliganti with these four little people, I was kind of freaked out because I'm like, I don't remember this happening at all. What's going on here? <laughs> it's you know what I mean. Like my memory is getting just changed, and that's a right. hashtag Mandela effect, which I have some videos on. Subscribe to Mike Messi YouTube channel, but you can find Mandela effect everywhere. People talk about it. Um, <laughs> that's that's got to be a new one, hey, Mike. <laughs> Mikey just plugged his YouTube, uh, his YouTube page for conspiracy videos while talking about an Elegante wrestling match from 1991. That has got to be a new new record there. Well, I mean, I, I could have mentioned my book and put it in front of the camera, but I didn't bother to do that. Um, but anyway, I I I felt like one man gang. I think Jim made a great point. It was a really bad incarnation, and I think that's sometimes what WCW did back then was they would get these old WWF guys and they would try to fluff them up a little bit. And a lot of times it didn't work. Sometimes with, for instance, Ricky Steamboat, it did work because Steamboat was such a good wrestler. But a guy like Hacksaw Jim Duggan coming in or or even the Blacktop Bully, the former member of Demolition, who of course was Crusher Khrushchev, it's just like sometimes they were just trying to fluff up these old WWF guys and, and do something different with, with them. And, and for fans like myself, it felt empty. Uh, going back to, to this match you just talked about, what, what match are we on? I'm getting so excited. Uh, we were just talking about Nikita Koloff and Sting in the chain match. Well, you know what? Just to make it quick, a great match. You're right, Benny. Sting didn't lose anything. It was unusual to see a babyface kind of lose a feud, so to speak, at this time. Um, although this did set us up for Sting. Uh, and Nikita reuniting, you know, six or seven months later as baby faces because the fans really did like Nikita. And Nikita's talked about this time when he was brought in as a heel to fight Luger and then Sting. And he said when he was fighting Luger, it was like, you know, 50 50, the fans were cheering for Luger and cheering for him as the heel Nikita. And then when he start, fought Sting, it was like 60 to 70% for Sting, but like 30 or 40% for him as Nikita as this heel. The fans wanted Nikita as a babyface because the initial turn with Magnum TA back in 86 was so powerful, the fans never could could be retrained to hate Nikita after that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's funny you mentioned the, the recycling because that was a, a point of what would become the, the later Monday Night Wars where you saw – or earthquake become avalanche and the big boss man uh -huh. become the, the big boss and the guardian where, you know, you, you brought somebody over and it was a watered down version. And then maybe they jump back to WWF as themselves. And you saw that with the big boss man with the corporation. And then his later uh, as Booker T's henchman, where every time they recycle the gimmick, it's a weaker, worse version. And it's just never, it never recaptures that magic. But uh, moving on to, what was on the poster should have been the main event, but it did not go on last was the Lex Luger, Barry Windham cage match. 
Um, Jim, I'm going to throw this one to you, but it's important to note that this match was changed. We talked about it at the top of the hour. This match was changed. It was supposed to be Luger and Flair with Flair leaving, Jim Hurd having to come out and announcing that Barry Windham was going to be the replacement. And Mikey touched on his uh, turn as the match went on. Um, but I'm going to give this to you. And then, Mikey, I want you to touch on the face turn. But, Jim, what were your thoughts on on this cage match, which, uh, my opinion, uh, really, because it started as Flair Luger, when it was Flair Wyndham, there was no heat. It almost felt, uh, as a fan, even as a kid, I'm like, I didn't get why it was in a cage. But what do you think, Jim? Well, it was a last-minute audible by Dusty. You know what I mean? He was doing what he had to do to put the best person in there to get the best he could out of a world championship match. So going with Wyndham, I mean, it seems like the obvious choice to me. But, yeah, you're right. There was no emotional buildup to the story for that at all. It was just a let's run with what we know is going to work. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Wyndham is such a clean worker that you could put him in any of them situations and he's going to make it go and, and get something out of it. You know what I mean? So I think – it was just a, a, a situation of, like, what are we going to do? You know what I'm saying? And I, they made the right choice, I think. Absolutely. Benny, you touched on Florida earlier when you talked about Kevin Sullivan. Something else that came from Florida was the title belt in this match. It was the Florida yeah. Championship Wrestling from Florida belt with some plates loosely attached to it. Um, as any fan of the territories, it was a very recognizable belt design. And I was surprised watching it back that they didn't really make much effort to hide the fact that it wasn't a WCW belt. It was prominently featured, ref lifted it up, camera showed it. Uh, what do you think about, about the the audible for the belt? Yeah, I, I'm not really sure how much people caught on. I mean, I think, you know, people like us, the, you know, the, the true aficionados, we catch on to stuff like that. I think most people probably miss that. Um I just think with this whole match, again, you know, the same thing. You got great ingredients, but there's no chef. I mean, these the, the, again, two of my favorite guys. But when you're expecting Ric Flair, no matter what, it's a come down when he's not there. And, and Benny, you touched on it. Or excuse me, Mikey, you touched on it. I'll give you the two points. The crowd clearly wanting Ric Flair. And then you mentioned earlier uh, Barry Windham turning face by default. Um, walk us through what you were thinking with, with how this match ended with Luger. It was when, as a fan, as a young fan watching this thing, it was very confusing and Jim Ross, and I believe Jim Ross has said, so I want to give him credit that he actually uh, passed a, what he passed something uh, like a liver stone or something. A kidney, kidney stone. stone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Jim Ross has said that during this show, he's passing a kidney stone and, and you can't really tell in the commentary. So I, I just have to tip my hat to Jim Ross for that because that's real professional. It's kind of like blown out of quad, you know? Right. And I, I do want to say that this was also a pay-per-view by my memory. That was Tony Schiavone's uh, first show back on pay-per-view with the NWA WCW. I could be wrong, but I think it was the reunion of Ross and Schiavone as a commentary team. So I like that as a, as a fan, like those voices together. And here we are in 2021 and those guys are working together again. Okay. Let's go to this match. Um, the match is weird. It, it, it has a weird energy. When Barry comes to the ring, they've misspelled his name on the graphic, which always upset me. They, <laughs> they, uh, did, they, dropped, they? they did. And it's, it's insult to me. That's an insult to the performer. And, and as Jim said, what a performer Barry Windham is and was, 
also, I want to give credit at the beginning of this pay-per-view, a shiny part of this pay-per-view is the opening where they, from the point of view of the cameraman, uh, getting free two free tickets to the show and then going yeah. into the Baltimore arena. That's kind of a nice thing that you haven't seen bef uh, before or since. It might be the highlight of the whole show. It's actually kind of <laughs> it was a cool. cool. It was cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like that you said they were free because even as a kid, I, I noticed that he didn't pay for the tickets. Yeah, there was no he money said, involved. Two, two tickets, please, and two the tickets, guy please. threw there tickets at him and go to the go to your seats there. So I mean, having been to the Baltimore Arena as a wrestling fan many times, and I would really like to go back to be honest with you. Um, seeing seeing the '90s fashion of kind of the fanny packs and the 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 T-shirts and all that stuff that kind of gives me good emotions to be honest with you because you feel like you're there. You know what I mean? Now this match, Wyndham comes out, and I believe it's Jim Ross who says something to the effect of, and he has his contingency of fans here. Plenty of Barry Wyndham fans here, which was really kind of like, what's that all about? You know what I mean? Because why would you say that? Wyndham's supposed to be the heel. Um, they do the whole match, and then you know, halfway through or, or nine-tenths of the way through, here comes Mr. Hughes and Harley Race. And Mr. Hughes was supposed to be the heater for the York Foundation at that time, but he's here with Harley Race. And Harley Race wasn't doing anything on camera at the time that I can remember. So it was very interesting. And then what does Harley say to, to Luger? Now is the time. Now is the time. And I believe it was just like Curtis Hughes was yelling at Wyndham or somehow distracting him. Didn't really touch him because it's a cage match. And Luger just gets like kind of energized up and, and gets his pile driver on Wyndham. It kind of feels like a clean finish. Like it's like if, if Harley and Mr. Hughes were supposed to be heels and helping Luger cheat – where is the cheating? Unless you want to say that Curtis Hughes distracting Barry is somehow this giant cheat. Okay, I think that was lost on the live audience because the the live audience is kind of cheering for Luger, maybe because they feel like they have to. This is kind of a crappy way for, for, for Luger to get his first world title. It would have been crappy for Barry to get the title here too. I think one thing that I'm not sure we touched upon is that there is this other story that goes around the internet and i think flair and Wyndham have talked about it at one point they were heard wanted rick flair to lose the title to barry before the pay-per-view on a saturday night taping like they wanted to shoehorn in okay flair you're leaving the territory we're not going to try we're not resigning you we can't agree do the favors to barry Wyndham, heel versus heel on the way out and then Barry will then either keep the title at L over Luger at the bash and, and maybe do a chase, Luger chasing Wyndham, or the same title flip at the bash, Luger beating Wyndham, and maybe they'd squeeze in that Harley Race uh, stuff at the bash with, with that. But what Wyndham, there was a, a plan, what I'm saying is there was a plan for, for uh, an attempt to have Wyndham go into the bash 1991 as the defending world champion, but that's when Rick said, I'm not going to even lose to Barry. You know, and, and Barry, I believe, has said that he was kind of upset about that for a lot of years because he felt that, hey, Rick, I've been right with you since the get. We've been the horsemen together. We had the Crockett Cup match together. Why can't you put me over for this title? That would mean a lot to me. But but Rick was so disgusted with Herd, he no longer yeah, cared about Wyndham. He was out. Yeah. That was all about Herd, not about Wyndham. <clears throat> exactly. Right. The other and, thing, uh, his history shown that those two made amends eventually. 
There was there was one other point uh, I, I had to squeeze in there, um, Dan. It was about um, the, the Barry Windham in some regard. Uh, just 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 like Jim said, just a terrific wrestler. Oh, this is what it was. There was some history with these two. It goes back to the shot heard around the world. Barry Windham turning on Lex Luger back in April of '88 when Wyndham turned on Luger and broke up the tag team and basically put the belts on a silver platter to Tully and Arn before the Crockett Cup 88, after the Clash of Champions 88 and before the Crockett Cup. So Wyndham had turned on Luger three and a half years earlier, but there was still friction because Luger and Wyndham were never on the same side. One was a baby face, one was a heel. One was a heel, one was a baby face. You know what I mean? So right. as a, like I said, this is my sweet spot as a fan. Me seeing these two guys put into a cage for a vacant title, that's not so bad for, for a, a young Mike Messier at the time. Like, I can go for that. It wasn't cold to me because I knew the history. Did WCW do a good job of presenting that history to salivate the fans, to make up for Ric Flair not being there? Probably not, because Jim Hurd probably knew less about pro wrestling than a five-year-old Mike Messier at the time. <laughs> Well, move, moving on uh, again, you have, like you said, what what is the big moment leading up with the, the default double turn? Uh, now you've got Luger as the champion uh, with the Florida belt. That's that's where you end the spectacle. However, it was not the last match of the night because we still have one match left now. I'm going to get into a little story for this one because it's very interesting. Benny and I were talking about this uh, yesterday, or was it this morning, before the match. And, Benny, you were unaware of this little tidbit. So I'll tell you guys uh, the story as well, the listeners out there. The the match was supposed to be the Steiner brothers, and it was supposed to be the Steiner brothers and Missy Hyatt against the Arn Anderson Barry Windham and Paulie Dangerously, who would, of course, go on to be Paul Heyman. Um, however, when Barry Windham got pulled from the match to be in the in the the cage, it became a handicap match. They pulled Scott Steiner, or uh, so you had Rick Steiner and Missy Hyatt against Arn Anderson and Paulie Dangerously. Um, however, the story goes that. Not, but I don't know if it was during the event or right before, but Maryland, the Maryland Athletic Commission had a, a law in place that did not allow intergender competition. So going into the night, at some point during the pay-per-view, they find out Missy Hyatt can't be in this match because men aren't allowed to put their hands on her. So they had the the, the, the the bit before the match started where some guys came out and abducted her and carried her backstage. So it was Rick Steiner in the handicap match against Arn Anderson and Paulie Dangerously, which this match was, I don't know if it was a side effect of having to change it at the last minute again, but from bell to bell, this match was two minutes and eight seconds. And Rick Steiner was was successful. Uh, Paulie dangerously proving that maybe managers should stay managers. Uh, I take nothing away from his effort, but it was obvious he's not a wrestler. It goes to what Mikey was saying with people, you know, where, where the wrestlers care, but it's just the crap they're dealt with. In this particular match, you could tell Arn and Rick were 
doing what they could, but I got to look at my watch. We've got to end this thing in about two or three minutes. This is a throwaway match. They both knew it. They wrestled well, but they clearly weren't 100% because I'm not going to risk injuring myself over this garbage. Um, And the crowd really wasn't into it and went home more confused than happy or angry because how is this the end of the night? Um, But this, this was really this match and just some of the stuff in between. It's kind of the sticking point of why everything is so negative. But uh, Jim, what were your thoughts on this? The the final two minutes of the show. I really think that they could have worked Scott Steiner back in once they once they knew that Missy Hyatt was going to be taken out over the athletic commission, which the state's athletic commission. They they're more harm than good sometimes when it comes to the quality of the product. But they could have had Scott come down, and they could have worked some kind of an angle to at least pull something out of the match where it wasn't just a two minute blow off. You know, it wouldn't have been a great match, and you would have had Polly and Arn versus the Steiners, but. It wouldn't have been this crappy little blow-away handicap job. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, the, uh, the this pay-per-view just kind of uh, fell apart, and we had some ups and downs. Um, I'm going to we'll go around the room. Uh, I'll start with uh, final grades. If I was being nice because of some of the highlights, I'd give this show a D-plus. Benny, what do you think? Uh C minus. I mean, there was some yeah. good. There was. I mean, there was a lot of good. And like Mike said, they, these guys really tried. They did the best they could with what they had. Mike, what do you think? At the time I watched it, I would probably give it a, a D, and I probably give it a D plus now. We're, just for the record, Scott Steiner was injured, and he wouldn't come back for months. So sure, oh. you could have you could have had him come out and just be Scott Steiner and never get tagged in, but. Um, I guess they took injuries pretty seriously back then, or maybe he was milking an injury. Who knows? But um, the other thing I wanted to switch in is, is a cheap plug, but as Benny knows, I did a video where I did revisionist history and I rebooked this whole show as an eight man tournament. And my vision of this show is scrap the whole card and have an eight man single night elimination tournament. And I believe, um, I had Luger versus Arn in the first round. I had Nikita versus Sting in the first round. Morton versus Gibson in the first round. And I think Wyndham versus the Yellow Dog in the first round to to put a button on that feud and still get you to where you needed to be with Luger versus Wyndham. So, I mean, I think the problem is with these wrestling promoters, once they've kind of locked in that this is our card and, oh, my God, Flair's not here, what are we going to do? And, and like I think um, Jim said, Barry Windham's the most talented guy. Let's yank him out of this tag team thing because Scott's not there anyway. That's like the quick fix. It would have taken them a little more effort and a little more time to say, well, this whole show is pretty whacked out. Let's simplify it. Let's make it an eight-man tournament. Let's find a new champion. The crowd, if they're watching a title tournament and the guys are really working hard, they're probably going to stop chanting we want flair by the second or third match of the tournament you know because they're paying their money to be there so they can't they're they're hurting themselves if they're going to chant we want flair all night now, that's my 
Oh, I'm sorry, Ben. I thought you were done, Mikey. Go ahead. No, that's just my vision of if, if I had been the booker at age five in Baltimore and Gary Michael Capetta and I and Dusty were sitting there at Sabatino's in Baltimore, you know, I would have broken out my pen and said, let's make this an eight-man tournament. And you can still have Luger win as a heel, and you can still turn Wyndham. You can still have Nikita versus Sting. You can still do all this cool stuff. But let's get rid of some of this scaffold stuff, six-man eliminations, Big Josh and – we can get rid of all right. the, the that crap and have a nice eight-man tournament that's two hours and 50 minutes and you're done with your pay-per-view. That's how I would see it. Well, you know, you talk about winning over the crowd, which, by the way, Mikey, that was a, a good final thought for just give me a quick letter grade. I love it. But um, the the you mentioned winning over the crowd. Benny, when we talked about the – Last pay-per-view, the WWE pay-per-view, the Charlotte and Rhea Ripley match, the crowd was chanting, we want Becky. And as the match went on, they turned and started really getting into it because of how good of a match it was. And they kind of won the crowd over. So it is possible. I don't know with the, the dedication the crowd had to the the NWA crowd had to flare if, if how good of a match you'd have to do to win it, win them over. But it is possible. But um, final thought, Jim, uh, what was your uh, grade on the show? I would go along with Benny. I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't drop it into the D range. I would give him a C minus just because of the fact that you had a lot of guys that that tried to get something out of what they were given, you know. So I wouldn't shit on it completely. You had a good cast of of wrestlers. I really do. I mean, getting back to Mikey for a second, I really like that because I did watch his video about rebooking the bash. And I mean, you think about it, like you don't have the midgets, you don't have the Z hose and the lumber hose. And I'm not sure if they're the same ones. I mean, the ones that came out with the uh, Z man, are they the same ones that came out with big Josh? I'm not sure. Uh, so you don't have that. You don't have, you know, all the gimmicks. You don't have the, the cage. You just have eight guys. And, you know, I don't know, maybe somehow you can make a 10 if you had like a, like a round Robin or something like that. Wild get, card round. Yeah. Get a, get a wild card round. And I think with something like that, and you could just, you know, say we originally were going to do this, but however, due to the, you know, the re- recent, uh, uh, you know, uh, dismissal, whatever you want to call it, or Ric Flair, we have now decided to make the championship contested by this tournament. I think people would, you know, really eaten that up. Yeah, I, I could see that. And I, Mikey, I, I like that, that narrative. And if you have to kind of like the, uh, the other tournament pay-per-views, if you want to have maybe one or two of these matches that are passable, like, say, maybe a, a, a tag match, just a no scaffold, but a straight tag match with uh, Austin and Taylor against Eaton and somebody besides PN News, that could be the filler. Or not, maybe not filler, you know what I mean? That could be the well, gap. Let me up match. It, yeah. Exactly, the gap right. between the tournaments. But, um, I mean, really, so we got four of the four of us, a couple of – Mark's uh, uh, very knowledgeable in history, fans of wrestling for many years. Uh-oh, look at that. It's Barry Windham with his championship. and He's so go. sad. He's so sad that he didn't leave Baltimore that night with the WCW title. He's, he's oh, no. <laughs> Remco 85. Ah, boy. But uh, <laughs> that, nothing, nothing like guys our age ha- having action figure battles over, over webcam. But, um. Uh, right. So we got two C minuses and two D pluses. Anybody that's ever been through school knows that still passes. So this show didn't fail. That's it's a better a- GPA than anybody on the, in the animal house movie. 
very true. Um, a great point average. But as, as we wrap up, guys, uh, Mikey, Jim, I appreciate you being here. Jim, of course, Absolutely. your uh, work can be found on ProWrestlingStories.com. Mikey, you can be found on, on YouTube, the Join Mark, Mike Messier YouTube channel. Subscribe to Mike Messier Subscribe YouTube Subscribe to channel. Mike Messier, excuse me. Subscribe um, to Mike Messier. Yep, Go ahead. Subs- subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. 906, 906 subscribers, thanks to yourself, and really thanks to Benny for always promoting and encouraging Mike's meals. Uh, for the wrestling fans... There's a lot of AEW clips on my channel. You're not going to find anywhere else. That's just a hint. If you dig around, you're going to see some big-time AEW stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else. But on subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel and all my pro wrestling rants. You might disagree. You might agree. But stop by and see what you think. There you go. And uh, obviously, you guys both fan, uh, friends of the show active on our page uh, we appreciate it uh, we like to grow and move off each other and uh benny as we continue to go inward and outward we got a lot of good things coming up for our channel and our show and uh so for mike messier for jim phillips for the bs express himself benny scala i'm dan spasciano as always everyone have a great night and happy wrestling